WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. What the soap? WTS and Company in Prattsville for soaps and lotions made on site, locally handcrafted candles, pottery, jewelry, art, and gifts, and a hand-picked selection of books on homesteading, nature, and local history. WTS and Company in the Prattsville Plaza and online at whatthesoap.com. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center on State Route 10 in Walton for disposal and recycling. Open 7.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center information about materials and disposal fees at 607-832-5800 or see the Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center link at WIOXradio.org. Peekamoo's Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian for farm-to-table cuisine, seasonal specialty cocktails, and local craft beers. Peekamoo's Dining Room, Tap Room, Lounge, and Outdoor Deck. Open Thursday through Monday at 5 p.m. Dinner reservations recommended 845-254-6500. 845-254-6500. Peekamoo's.com. Hi. I'm Mark Beerman, host of Mark Beerman Sports here on WIOX Roxbury. I'm also a former nationally ranked tennis player and the current women and men's head tennis coach at SUNY Delhi. As director of tennis at Tennis Everyone for 15 years, I've been teaching kids, adults, and seniors from beginners to tournament-level players. Tennis Everyone, a supporter of WIOX, offers individual and group programs to players of all skill levels, as well as weekly women's, men's, and doubles clinics, and also partners players for off-site play. Information about Lessons with Tennis Everyone at 845-254-4400 or mark at tenniseveryone.com. Okay, good evening. You're listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable 
Channel 20 and on the campus of SUNY Delia 107.5 FM, worldwide at WIOXradio.org and on any mobile device FM radio app. This is From the Forest. Every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., we talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. Ryan's out tonight, but I've got a guest on tonight. Uh, you might know him as a forester in your woods, but it's Mr. Randy Kelly, R.C. Kelly, as they call him, the best forester in the Catskills I've heard. You'll have to explain that one. <laughs> and uh, Randy, how's it going? It's going well. It's a pleasure to be here. Someone told me you're the best forester in the Catskills. You got to explain that. Well, that's a matter of opinion. There's a lot of great foresters out there. Absolutely, are. Huh? I put it this way: I'm probably one of the older. Oldest foresters. Are you? You going to age yourself then or no? Well, listen, it's hard to believe, but uh, this year is my 50th reunion out of uh, the College of Forest Year Syracuse. Really? So uh, we'll be out. Lucci, my wife, and I will be going there in uh, October. Well, 50th reunion. So yeah, I'm kind of dating myself in that respect. Really cool. Really cool. Well, yeah. I, I think, well, yeah, to date you for, I think you partied with my parents. Yeah, well, <laughs> you listen, did. I, uh, <laughs> I uh, knew them before they knew you. <laughs> so that, that's <laughs> you know, how long you've been yeah, a forester. Yeah, John and Mary, we go back a long time. So, uh, <laughs> well, you kind of hinted, but I guess tell us about yourself. Uh, where are you from? Who are you? What brought you to the Catskill region? And how are you a forester? Okay, well, um, again, I've been doing forestry a long time. It's my 50th year, actually, out of Syracuse. So, But to start, uh, I was uh, raised on a small farm in Dunraven, uh, <laughs> And uh, well, my grandfather had a farm there, so I had two uh, two uh, separate uh, dwellings. And uh, but in '55 we had to leave uh, because the building Perpacton Reservoir. So uh, we moved to Hawkinsville, next to Lake Awaka, in 1955. So I spent six years in Dunraven with my brothers and sister, and parents, and uh, my grandfather ended up moving and bought a farm in the village of New Kingston. And, uh, which was the last farm in New Kingston, right in the village, and we moved to Hawkinsville, and uh, which had a great upbringing. That was back in the 50s and 60s. He just wandered around the uh, Bragg Hollow. I knew all the farms up there, worked on the farms, worked in the hay fields, milk cows. It was just a good upbringing. Those, those were good years. And uh, I always liked being in the woods, always hunted fish. And, uh, in fact, uh, as far as forestry, it's just something that just came natural. I guess my DNA or whatever, it's just uh, I've always been interested in the outdoors. And I was looking at being a conservation officer, but then, you know, I decided uh, I was more interested in forestry, forestry management. So uh, I have a twin brother who uh, went on to Syracuse, uh, the College of Forestry, and he became a wildlife biologist. And I have actually an uncle who uh, graduated from the College of Forestry, too, back in the 50s. So forestry kind of runs in a family. I, uh, one, in my senior year, I applied to a small private school up in uh, by Lake, Saranac Lake called uh, Paul Smith. And that's the only school I applied to. Fortunately, I got in because I, otherwise I probably would have been drafted. And that was the Vietnam era uh, time in, in uh, which, uh, you know, I just, just applied to one school and was accepted. And I actually was applied into their two-year uh, technical program. And uh, my second year, I switched over to pre-pro, which I had to take some different courses, and then I transferred on to uh, Syracuse. And one of the reasons I switched over to, to pre-pro from technical, which, you know, I probably would have went into logging, uh, into a technical aspect of forestry, but your second year, you had to stay at White Pine Camp. 
and those guys were brutal. They came from the backwoods of Maine and Canada, and they come in uh, with bull whips and wouldn't use utensils at the dining hall. One thing great about Paul Smith back then, it's a, a great hotel uh, management program, excellent food, and that was essential up there because we were in the boondocks. And uh, But those guys were just, uh, I said, there's no way I'm going out to White Pine Camp, so I switched no? over. Those, those guys are some brutal. <laughs> I mean, they were tough. So what was White Pine Camp then? Well, White Pine, it, it was a private estate at one time that Paul Smith uh, College had purchased. And uh, so they, that's where they, uh, the second-year technical forces student stayed, uh, which I don't think is no longer, uh, they have that program at, at uh, White Pine. Uh, we have a, a dear friend, uh, Richie McIntosh, and uh, he went to White Pine Camp. Yeah, I've heard and, some and survived. <laughs> and survived. <laughs> and survived. So, but anyways, but I went on to uh, Syracuse, and uh, which is a very good school too. Uh, though uh, Paul Smith now, I believe, is a four-year program that you went to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I graduated right. out of Paul Smith. Yeah, a few years after me. <laughs> yeah, quite right? a few years. <laughs> so it's a great school. Uh, a lot of people went there, a lot of students, because it's a great location. By Lake Placid, and you got the, the uh, Cernak Lake chain, and mm -hmm. it's just it's a beautiful place to be. So, uh, And that's why a lot, a lot of my friends came up from Connecticut, New Jersey. Yeah. So uh, that's where I a lot of the uh, student base was, came from. They had a great uh, surveying program, too, which had a start in the summer. But um, I got a little bit of surveying in my forestry classes. But I went on to Syracuse and got through uh, th that program uh, my junior, senior year. had great professors. It, you know, uh, it was very, uh, very informative. And then I graduated in uh, 1972 and. uh my brother was working for the Forest Service in Vermont, and he was ready to get transferred out west and uh, and got me a job with the U.S. Forest Service in Vermont, which I worked for a couple of years. Back in, then, in those days, they had uh, an abundance of foresters, so it was hard to get a forester's position. So I got a technical slot, but that's what I liked. I was marking timber and doing TSI, timber stand improvement work, and, uh, and uh, things like that. Um, so I did that for two years, but then after a while, I, I couldn't see the advancement where I wanted to be. I wanted to be up and be a forester and, and then transfer across the country, the different national forests. So I left and um, became a teacher for BOCES down in, uh, this is quite a change from Vermont, where I was based in Middlebury and Rochester, Vermont, which are two beautiful areas. I uh, ended up going down to uh, Valhalla, down by White Plains, New York, and taught at BOCES for... Uh, about almost 10 years and uh, th that was a great time too we, we taught uh, conservation which was forestry we taught a little surveying we had a dozer backhoe little landscaping little arboriculture arboriculture taught a little bit of everything cool so i did that and probably would have stayed doing that but then uh, in 1981 the city of new york uh, look uh, was encouraged <laughs> because <laughs> Encouraged in the sense that they started to do some forestry work on their uh, properties in the in the uh, Casca Mountains, and they had at the time close to ninety thousand acres, but they weren't doing anything with it. And there was uh, some people after the city said you should be managing your property. So you know, the, one of the engineers, uh, a couple of the engineers, said, "Well, I can do that. You know, you don't need a forestry degree." 
and uh, so started to do a timber sale along the Ashokan Reservoir, right adjacent to Route uh, 28. High visibility. And I was teaching at the time, went by it, and it looked like somebody had dropped a bomb off. I mean, it was, it was pretty messy. And they had a lot of problems. And, of course, it's close to Woodstock, and, uh, and it was with a high visibility, a lot of criticism, a lot of complaints. Politics got involved, and, and the... Uh, Anyways, the uh, city uh, hired me. I was fortunate to get the job because there were a lot of applicants, and uh, but I became their first forester because of the uh, of that timber sale, which uh, you know it wasn't done correctly. So my first job was going there and, and, and to uh, clean it up. Okay. And, uh, but basically, I was focusing on red pine at the time, which had been planted too thick, too dense, never thin. So it gets to a certain height, then the wind gets in there, start blowing it down. So you got a static issue, you got a fire issue. So that's what. But I, it was a great job because I was based out of Downsville, New York, and I worked all through the uh, Casco Mountains on the various uh, watershed properties, and also east of Hudson in the Croton system. I worked over there too because it's, that's where the city gets ten percent of its uh, water. And uh, so it was, um, I had a great experience. I retired from the uh, New York City, it's hard to believe, in 2005. And uh, being the first forester, I, I got to uh, set up the whole program on the uh, water supply uh, properties of New York. Now they have, with this land purchases, probably another couple, uh, couple hundred thousand acres plus, and they have over a dozen foresters now. Yep. So, uh, which are doing a great job. They got very competent people and qualified people so anyways i retired in 2005 and uh, i have a uh, small uh, consultant forestry business which i'm still active i'm, I'm uh, very fortunate that i can get out in the woods and i do get out in the woods i enjoy being in the woods and uh, i have some great clients i've had some clients for 30 years some of them i've already had a, some of them i've uh, cut uh, had, had timber sales or less for uh, a couple times uh, i'm working with some of the family members now who I started with their parents. Ah. And uh, so that's pretty, pretty uh, impressive, I think. I, and uh, I retired a, a great time, too, because I got to give a little promotion for the water, uh, WAC, the Watershed Ag Council. Uh, when I was working with the DP, I sat on a couple of committees. The, the WAC started initially to help the farmers to protect their uh, water, uh, you know, uh, the water purity going through the farms, because all farms have water. <laughs> tend to have a stream and they've really helped a lot of farmers out with barnyard improvements and uh, different programs to protect the uh, uh, prevent erosion minimize erosion and all sorts of things like that and uh, about five six years later decided to go into forestry too because all farms in the Caskills have a woodlot and uh, you know 50 acres 100 acres whatever uh, so they I sat on a committee and uh, we wrote a guideline, best management practices. So when you're doing a, a timber harvesting, like you've got uh, agricultural best management practices for farming too. Um, but anyways, uh, I sat on that for the BMPs. And so what's great now, being a consultant forester, and what happens in the New York City watershed is that the WAC forestry program pays for uh, writing, uh, developing uh, forest management plans. Uh, if you're going into the New York State uh, 40A uh, tax law program that reduces land taxes if uh, you're enrolled into that program. Otherwise, they used to pay for management plans regardless if you were enrolling in the 40A program or not. 
but they pay uh, the logger at the end of a log job. Once you, if you complete an application and get it sent into WAC and get it approved, they pay to uh, install BMPs, water bars, cross drainages, uh, to seed and uh, hay the landings, and uh, which is very helpful because uh, logging is a very tough business, very dangerous business. I've been in business for close to 50 years. I've known over 40 guys. Uh, some cases not personally, but I've known of them in the Caskills who have been killed during a logging operation. And not necessarily just from a tree uh, that they're felling, but all kinds of issues, you know, from branches coming out of an adjacent tree, from uh, accidents with logging equipment. It's just a, a dangerous, hard uh, profession. And uh, when I first started uh, my consultant business, I used to mail out 35 uh, bids, you know, because you bid on timber sales. And um, so I mailed to 35 individuals or companies. Now I'm down to about five or six. Wow. That's scary because um, the people just, uh, one thing I see, the younger people are not going into uh, logging these days. It's very, it's very frightening. Uh, I'm glad I was in it when I was. Hopefully this will turn around because I see in the future that uh, the price of logs become more valuable uh right now there's a well it's been tough the last two three years because of covid uh, uh 19 hit and then that really uh shut down a lot of logging operations or drastically slowed them down because uh a lot of your better logs are exported to uh southeast asia vietnam is is a big importer it's, it's hard to believe really along with china but um you know all that stock came to a halt so there's a shipping containers full of logs in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and uh, so people couldn't move them. And then like the local markets, uh, you know, uh, r right now we have a shortage of drivers, truck drivers, and you just can't find people uh, who uh, want to work in the woods. It's, it's just hard, dangerous work. Uh, in fact, a few people, uh, I, in fact, I just got a job up in Bragg Hollow. That's the hollow that... Uh, uh, just outside of Hawkersville that I used to uh, ride my bike up and to different dairy farms and milk the cows. Hard yeah, to believe. You're going to cut the trees that. you used to climb in? Oh, man, I'm not. And I've hunted all over Bragg Hollow. But anyways, b and just an excellent job. I was a little leery initially because this is the first operation that uh, they came in with a tree uh, uh, feller buncher. And that's a piece of equipment that can uh <laughs> cost up to uh, half a million dollars, four or five hundred thousand dollars, if not more. It's unbelievable. It actually grabs a tree, cuts it at the base with a saw, and then actually uh, can delimit and stacks it. And then uh, they have a forwarder, another machine actually comes with a picker onto it, picks up the logs, and then takes them back to the landing. Now you're looking at probably close to a million dollars worth of equipment, brand new. And a lot of people can't afford that. You know, it's, it's tough. So, uh, that's another problem, too, I see in forestry. It's just, besides not getting workers, is that the cost of the equipment, even a new skitter, uh, is very pricey. And and now what's uh, affecting logging is the price of diesel. It's unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. It's just uh, I put a couple of sales out to bid last year, and uh, I told the landowner we were lucky we did it when we did because otherwise the, the bid probably would have been seven dollars $8,000 lower, if not more, because of the price of diesel. Because all your logging equipment runs on diesel and, and, of course, gasoline for your chainsaws and so forth. And just getting to work. So that's a, a problem right now. 
the interest rates are going up, so people are a little slow down in building, so that's affected log prices somewhat. So with inflation, so uh, it's been a, a rough uh, last two, three years in the uh, logging business. Uh, forestry, I mean, I do more than just, I mean, I really enjoy timber sales, marking it. Uh, for a, for a landowner, I'll actually go in there uh, and actually mark the trees with paint. We have a special paint we use in a special paint gun to mark the trees that we select for uh, saw logs. And also, uh, I mark a lot of trees, which what we call call trees. And call trees are trees which are they have no value, very little value. They may have some value for firewood, but they're cold trees, basically. They never be a suitable saw log. But they, those are the trees that need to come out of the forest, the cold trees, because uh, it's like forestry is like sophisticated gardening. It's like gardening on a more uh, higher level because you got to get in there like carrots and thin them out, beets, and you get a better uh, crop. <laughs> and, and basically, uh, trees are can be a crop. But also, I leave... Um, call trees too if they're very large and got holes into them i'll leave uh I'll leave a few here and there for wildlife and occasionally i'll find a unique large trees just unique aesthetics whatever i leave that so you know we there's a lot of uh discretion you have to use uh judgment when you're when you're marking timber it's, it's a lot to it i enjoy it i mean it sounds you're on a steep mountainside you gotta be careful you're walking too it's just uh you know it can be a little treacherous at time Last year was unbelievable because it rained about, I remember last July, it rained every day about five, and, uh, which was uh, unbelievable. This year we tend to be drier, so. Uh, but I, I enjoy doing timber sales. I do a lot of forest management plans, uh, which you write a plan for a landowner, which advises them how to uh, manage their timber on their property. And plus, it's not just timber, also your wildlife is a big issue too. Actually, I find more people are interested in wildlife than they are uh, in timber many times. I do the, I do that as well. I mean, all the surveys that go out, it doesn't matter who did it, and you can look at several of them that have been done, but it seems like wildlife is near the top of any land purchase decision, right next to recreation. When you have the landowners asked about it, timber's near the bottom. Yeah. But it's funny because in the end, when uh, you need to pay for some of this wildlife cut or you need to pay for taxes or something else to keep the land or pay for this other recreational activity like hunting, uh, a timber sale ends up being involved. So even though it's at the low, low of the bottom for reasons of purchase, it's at the top of the top when you start breaking things down. So Yeah, when I, when I do the, as I said, the New York State has the uh, 480A uh, Forest Tax Law Program, and I do a lot of those. Uh, and you're required to cut timber when it's ready to be cut. You know, based on its size and age, condition, density, and so forth. So, uh, you know, and and most people go into 40A uh, program because land taxes are uh, so high, are really high, and they really affect a lot of people uh, as far as being able to afford to retain their property. And that's one way that they do is go into 40A program. And I see a lot more of that happening here in this part of the Catskills. I've seen a big increase the last 20 years because taxes have gotten higher uh, in the uh, this section of the Catskills. Before, most of the 48s were down in uh, Orange County, Rockland County, closer to the city. We have higher taxes, but it's all creeping up this way, Yeah, the, the uh, Ford, um, land taxes. So the 48A is one way to deal with that. Uh, so the DZ breaks them down by regions, right? There's eight, yeah. eight, eight or nine regions in New York whole, State. In New York yeah. State. Uh, 
I once read that 50% of all 48s are in Region 4, which is where we're sitting right now. Yeah, yeah. Encompasses about half or a little more than half of the yeah. Catskill region. Yeah, and, and three. And then region, region 3 is the other yeah. half that I'm speaking of. Yeah, and they, they, yeah that's what the Bunko Meyer, and it's increasing. More people are interested in 48. And I don't talk people into it. People call me up and ask me about it. I mean, it, uh, it's a great program if uh, once you hear the plus or minuses. I mean, it's a program that uh, – you're in, and definitely, uh, it's got to be every plan. has got to be updated every five years. And uh, if you got, you may have an expense occasionally. Uh, if you've got uh, immature uh, timber on your property, which we call uh, pole timber. Pole timber is the size of timber between four inches and generally uh, like 12 inches. And uh, our small saw timber, if, uh, if it needs to be thinned out, but that may be a cost to the landowner because then you have to go in there and, and I do that, what they call TSI work. I enjoy doing it, but uh, I'm not getting younger. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, a lot I, of people don't. I, I mean, I, a lot of people, and people have gotten, we had a forester, as we know, uh, uh, got killed over by Delhi doing TSI work. Yeah. And um, got from uh, Saugerties. Do you remember who that was? Jude Zygott. Jude Zygott. Very, very sad, very unfortunate. Yep, and uh, and that and it's something that's happened to loggers too. Is that uh, when they've dropped a tree, they've uh, turned to walk away to the, look at the next tree they're going to drop and take their eye off the tree that they're felling. And one thing that you never do is turn your back on a tree you're cutting. Let it go on the ground and then start, uh, you know, either cutting that tree up or with TSA you don't have to cut them up necessarily. You're just dropping them on the ground. Then you move on to your next tree, but you don't turn your back on a tree. And you always stay alert, keep a little distance away from that tree because I've known a couple, few other people who are cutting a large uh, uh, timber. Uh, sugar maple in particular is one case, and uh, but it's in the summertime. And many times a large uh, tree has a large canopy. You can't see what's happening in, in the canopy, but you got big trees around it too. And, and when that tree starts coming down, you disturb, a, it may have dead wood in an adjacent tree. And uh, that tree... Uh, and that dead wood can, uh, you know, uh, actually, I know two people. It was it caused their uh, their deaths just by uh, they made it to the hospital, but the damage was too great. So uh, you just never turn your back. That's why I go in the woods. I always tend to think of some of these issues. You always got to keep on keep alert when you're working in the woods. Yeah, definitely. You know, with a chainsaw. But and, and uh, a lot of my timber sales now are basically. Uh, Dealing with the uh, white ash, unfortunately, uh, boy, it's another thing besides a shortage of loggers and and people in the logging business these days is the health of our forest. It's kind of depressing in a way because it seems like every tree species has a has a disease or, or some type of pathogen that's affecting it. In fact, you just looked at the white spruce in front of my uh, my house. I'm afraid I'm going to have to get the uh, tree canopy jumpers, whatever to cut down. Yeah, that one's got to well, go. Well, they got a chip. I want a chip. That's a hard, I don't mind cutting them, but it's then you got to clean it up. So then uh, they someone will just chip it up and and uh, move it off site. But it's a lost cause because probably only has. Uh, I don't know, 10, 15% canopy on it now. Yeah, it's it's over. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's sad. So, uh, well, we had, when we first bought the house in uh, 1981, there was like, uh, you wouldn't know what today, there was three spruces in front of the house. And one was on the corner over by the driveway. And uh, what happened to that one? And they were much smaller at the time. 
because you're looking, geez, over 40 years. And I've been planting trees for 40 years on my farm. I just enjoy planting trees. The, uh, but anyways, we used to raise highland cattle, and uh, we were away once, and somehow the, our bull weighed about 1,800 pounds. Uh, Jeremiah got out, got loose. Somebody didn't shut the gate, but I'm not going to mention names. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, I have very good neighbors because the bull was down there uh, doing with the uh, white spruce tree, fencing and uh, duking it out. <laughs> and the tree lost. I mean, he stripped some of the branches off and pushed the tree and bent it. I mean, if he knew his strength, I mean, he was 1,800 pounds. He, he just, uh, and, but this is docile. He's a beautiful, just a beautiful animal. In fact, I have his head on my wall in, in our in my game room. I just couldn't. <laughs> That's the only taxidermy bull I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I <laughs> mean, they had to use a bison. They had to use a bison uh, mount. Yeah. mount it's just uh, unbelievable. But anyways, uh, a lot of my timber cells right now are basically dealing with white ash, which generally is only represents 6 to 8% of a forest. But I just did a mark the timber lot down in Millbrook, and this guy had like 60% ash in sections of the property, I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, in fact, he had EAB, the emerald ash bore, uh, and a few trees. And it's all through the Catskills. In fact, the EAB is all through the eastern United States. It came uh, into uh, in the United States through the Great Lakes shipping and some wooden pallets or whatever, ballast, wooden pallets, and uh, about 16, 18 years ago. And since that time, it spread from Michigan all the way here to where we are. And it's very damaging. It kills all your ash, all ash species, because you got black, white, and uh, green. Yes, I was gonna throw me another one. Is there a purple? No, I'm just kidding. I just uh, <laughs> go through the that's, rainbow. That's basically three. We just have, we just have white ash, maybe some black ash. I think further north. You see green ash planted as an ornamental every now and then, yeah, but not but, not that common. But and and I think black ash is known for making baskets. Yep. You know, and uh, but anyways, all your you can kiss your ash goodbye because uh, it's all gone with the EAB. Hopefully, at some I, we're going to lose the overstory. Uh, there's no stopping that, and that's what the bulk of my timber sales are. So. Uh, and ash is a beautiful tree. It's just got a beautiful purplish foliage in the fall. Very, very colorful. It's just a unique tree. It's just the way the bark is ferrowed, you know. It's like corky. It's beautiful. It's just, and the wood is very unique, white ash, you know, because uh, baseball bats, hockey sticks. Yep. Uh, you know, it's just uh, very beneficial, very unique. So the overstory we're going to lose, but there's hope because Cornell is doing research with uh, different beetles and uh, different uh, other path, uh, native uh, pathogens. Of parasitic that. wasp is what it yeah, is. Yeah, parasitic wasp. Well, it's the same thing with hemlock woolly delgid. <clears throat> That's a beetle, yeah. You know, hemlock woolly delgid. And they got a wasp with that, too. With uh, the, that one's a beetle. Yeah, but well, they got a beetle and a wasp. Oh, both. Okay, they got yeah. like four or five different, uh, you know, uh, treatments that they're uh, releasing and they're studying because you just can't, all these diseases are coming from Asia. Mm-hmm. The Far East, as far as EAB and uh, Hemlock Woolly Delgid, that actually came in the West Coast before it got to the East Coast, I believe, and that's been here longer. But anyways, uh, they're, they're doing research with uh, hopefully uh, with different uh, insects or whatever diseases that hopefully will uh, get the uh, EAB, Emerald Borer, under control. So because it's in the understory, so it'll come back at some point in time. But all our tree species have an issue. The uh, I just went to a meeting up in Maine. It's the uh, New England uh, Forestry Group. I mean, we have a society, Society of American Foresters, and 
we have chapters. We have a New York chapter, the New England chapter. So I went to the New England chapter in, in the spring. We had a great time in South Portland. And uh, I sat in about uh, different tree diseases, the new ones. And the new one I never heard of, you probably haven't either, is the uh, beech leaf disease. Have you heard of that one? No. Different than the beech bark yes, disease. it's a different one. I said, oh, because I, <laughs> I love beech. It's a beautiful tree. It's got that beautiful gray bark. And it's just that nice fall golden coppery color, brown color, and it's a great wildlife tree when it produces beech nuts. But today they're almost it's just almost impossible to find beech nuts because all the beech trees are diseased. If you go out down south, you find disease-free beech because beech scale nectar hasn't got to, gotten there yet. But that came in initially almost the turn of the century through uh, Nova Scotia. Mm. So it's been in this country a long time, but it just totally deforms the beech trees. And, so uh, what's this beech leaf disease then? Well, it, and they think it's from a nematode that gets up into the system of the tree, vascular system, and, and uh, affects the leaves. You know, because you know a nematode is microscopic. Right. And uh, and you know if you destroy the leaves on a tree, that's it. There goes the health of the tree. So I planted two uh, European beech. My wife loves fern leaf beech. We saw them over to Europe once and. Because they've been collecting trees over in the states of Scotland and England and Ireland for the last three, four hundred years. They sent botanists all over the world. And in fact, that's where I saw my first redwood was on a, an estate in uh, Scotland. <laughs> Hard to believe. And Douglas fir. They got Douglas fir just as big as on the West Coast because the uh, the climate is very similar to the West Coast. Yeah. In fact, uh, the Douglas fir is named after a botanist, Douglas, who's a Scottish botanist. And uh, but you see, unbelievable. And you see beach forest over there, but the European beach, gorgeous, all planted and just you know two, three hundred years old. It's just uh, very impressive. So I planted two beach up there. One's like a coppery color, and the other's a fern leaf, which my wife likes. But then I heard about this disease in the spring. So geez. see well, if they make it. Well, hopefully they're isolated enough that. Uh, but but we'll see. But we're dealing with it. EAB. Um, I got a couple of clients down by the uh, south of Margaretsville, and uh, we just discovered uh, the uh, Hemlock Willie Delgid is on the west side of the uh, Delaware River now, so it's on a couple of properties that I manage. That's a little depressing, but it can take quite a while, five, six, eight years, for them actually to kill the hemlock trees. But hopefully uh, these beetles, the, the, uh, per, the predatory beetle will become more prevalent and west uh, side of the delaware where what township are, we, are you middle, finding it well on the west side of the east east branch yeah yeah excuse me yeah. the west branch of the uh west side of the east, east branch, branch. Yeah, yeah, okay. maybe yeah. you said that maybe my brain mixed <laughs> that up. i was the west branch west side of the west branch well you know, it's, huh? it's the uh yes so anyways i just want to see if you're paying attention i am so what do you I, think I, i'm I, doing you're right you're right on your game <laughs> <laughs> i'm not talking much because yeah. i like to listen yeah. but no it's just south of Marcusville. <laughs> yeah okay and uh, unfortunately so but hopefully they got these predator beetles and wasps but uh they'll get in uh, great enough uh numbers abundance that they'll uh, keep the hemlock woolly delgid under control uh, and also they have the hemlock scale you know that's even worse it's harder to control yeah i mean hemlock Pretty much in New Jersey and, and down the Appalachian, it's all been uh, killed. You go in the Great Smoky Mountains, Shenandoah National Park, you've got him like three or four or five hundred years old, dead. It's really sad to see. So uh, this uh, workshop that I went with the New England foresters in, in Portland, they talked about another disease that's become more prevalent is uh, is uh, 
oak blight. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah, I have. It tends to affect the red oaks more than the white oak, and uh, it's not that prominent yet. But hopefully, it doesn't. Uh, hopefully, it can keep it contained. It's like the uh, uh, what's the insect that was in New York City? The uh, remember it killed a lot of the maples down there. Um, Asiatic longhorn beetle. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, anyways, if that one ever escaped, got in the Catskills, it would be devastating because their primary uh, uh, tree species that they prefer is maple and birch. And maple is our main species. It's up our here. number one tree. Oh, yeah. it'd be devastating to that, the Ryan on this show. He jokes around. He says, if anything happens to his maples, that's it. He's out. He's he's leaving the Catskills. He quits. Well, that's it. And they, <laughs> they they spent millions and millions of dollars. To get it under control in the city. Uh, Rightfully so. And it's been in Chicago and also in Worcester, Massachusetts. So uh, now you don't hear much about it, but they're always looking for uh, on a lookout for it. And uh, Ajax Longhorn Beetle. And then the, uh, the blight now, the oak blight, they're on a the lookout for that. If you have a forest land and see that your oak is, uh, tends to be dying in, a, in an area, uh, it would be wise to have a, the state DC Forester or CFA. You guys will be up on that. Our consultant force will take a look at it and uh, because if that's what it is, then the state will actually come in and, and cut around it, cut that tree around it to contain it. And to, uh, Otherwise, it's a problem. It affects the red oak more, I guess, because the red oak, you know, uh, the difference between a red oak and a white oak. Remember, take, you ever take a wood products class, wood identification? No, I never took a wood products class. So I tell you, it sounds easy, but uh, when I went to Syracuse, you had to identify like 100 different tree species. Under a microscope? Oh, some of them, like the conifers, are very difficult. Mm. You know, some trees, all trees have annual rings, are, which some of them are very easy to see, but there's some species, you just they're diffuse, you can't really see the annual rings. So white oak's porous. Yeah, I mean, that's... Exactly, no... The uh, white oak. Oh, well, I didn't see it. Red oak's porous. Yes. Yeah, that's why it makes whiskey barrels. Yeah, you, yeah, out of white oak, and uh, and that's what gives the whiskey the uh, the color. Yep. Because uh, we went to another forest. We go to SAF conferences every year, up until two years ago. This year it's going to be in Baltimore, and, and I don't think I'm that there doesn't impress me too much. I like when they're off to a place I haven't been. Like we went to St. Louis when they had a. SAF conference, which was great, and then of course we did a whiskey tour in uh, Buffalo Trace, and of course, which ones did I go to first? Do you know your bourbons at all? I've done some of the bourbon trail through Kentucky and well, if you're a forest, Tennessee. If you're a forester, which one you got to go to? Uh, old Forester. Old Forester. <laughs> yeah. And I got a couple bonded bottles, and I haven't touched them. I haven't broke the uh, seal. No. Up. I'm oh, trying to save them. What are, you, so, what are you waiting for, Andy? Well, I'm just waiting for, uh, listen, I, I'm just kind of... Uh, keeping them for because uh, i probably won't get down that way again but the uh, bonded forester and that was the first bourbon actually you know made was old forester it's what they of course that's what they said in the tour so i don't know if that's exactly true or not but mm -hmm. they have a slew of bourbon but the white oak has a problem now because i don't know if you've read that they've got enough supply for the barrels for the next uh 20 25 years but they're not getting the regeneration right so Beyond that, there's going to be a problem. That's why there's a big uh, program now called the White Oak Initiative to plant white oak and to encourage white oak in a forest. And uh, we have white oak here, but we're kind of marginal where we are here. You see more in the Hudson Valley, but uh, they want to encourage it. Uh, 
you know, the production of white oak because it's going to be that's going to be critical as part of the bourbon process. Yeah, well, Gary Mead, who was on the show every every third Wednesday, I think he even said it on the show, but um, recently he heard that about the white oak initiative. And well, no, he was talking about the the cost, the price, the price of white oak is is within fifty cents, or it may have just surpassed black walnut. Yeah. Because they can't, no one's, no one's getting it, and, well, and and it's also the you know the micro distillery markets, you know, oh, bur- bourbons up oh, through the roof, and, oh. and everybody needs barrels, so it's a problem, no doubt. Well, why isn't it regenerating though? I mean, what's what's the issue with it? Well, I think they, they got to focus on more, but I think a problem too is like it's here with our own forest, and we're not pertaining to white ash or to uh, white oak deer. <clears throat> We have an overabundance of deer, and uh, when you do a harvest in a tree stand, uh, opens up the forest, and you always and you will get a if you got a successful harvest, that you get new uh, tree growth regeneration. Well, the problem is we got so many deer these days, and a lot of people will disagree and say well, we don't have enough deer. But you know, you're a hunter. Well, I don't think we have a. It's a number. It's a. I don't think it's a numbers game. I mean, I think it's a. It's a quality of, of habitat discussion well, more than anything because i mean we we used to have more deer you're a hunter too oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, didn't back, you used to see more deer in oh, the yeah. 80s hunting but like around here and what happened I mean, we had trees growing back then but i just uh but i don't know the quality we had trees growing but it's the quality of those trees that survived mm-hmm. and uh, of course that was back in the 50s in fact the farm that we're currently owned now the rose hedge farm we call it that's why I have the rose hedges out there I have some multiflora which people are trying to get rid of in their field but what a hedge it makes you know, it's impenetrable, as you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I mix it with other type of roses and plants, too. Ear grabbers. Yeah, because believe it or not, I was afraid because the rose has a uh, rosette virus disease now. Good. Take it out. Well, what's happening, and uh, I was just reading, too, they thought I was going to take it out, but the, the trees has responded to it and actually is recovering from it. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see some of my bushes where you got these witch which brooms grow? I've seen them too. They die back and yeah. then they start sprouting again. Yeah, but it's coming back. So actually, it's not. They predicted it was going to kill out not just uh, multiflora rose, but all roses, mm. rosette. So actually, it's, it's not as devastating as they said it was going to be. But I, but I see currently, regardless how many deer we had in the past, because when I was growing, when I was uh, my younger years in Hawkinsville, next to Lake Awaka, and uh, the Waka Waka tribe lived there. Did you ever hear the Waka Waka tribe? No. Well, you heard them, but they never existed. They were just... Oh, it's a, ever, it's a made-up lake. Isn't it? I don't know whoever <laughs> came up with that uh, Lake Awaka, but we didn't realize that when we moved to Hawkinsville in 55. The dam there was built for the Civil War by relatives of mine, the Kellys. Oh. And they, they had Guy Nelson Kelly had uh, a very large farm right in uh, Hawkinsville. Of course, the train used to go through it. They had a major ice house. Mm-hmm. You can see the foundation today in Lake Awaka or Hawkinsville Pond. We used to swim in there, hard to believe, in the 60s. Hmm. Swim. We used to go from the mill house, which was the Kelly's Grist House. They actually had electricity in Hawkinsville. They had a uh, horizontal uh, generator, you know, and, uh, through a sluice, water sluice. Wow. And uh, so they produced uh, the, the Hamlet of Hawkinsville was one of the first places to have electricity. <laughs> Yeah, the, so they, anyways, the Kelly's had a very large farm. It's huge, 800 acres. It's pretty much been uh, downsized now, a lot been sold off. And uh, But that farm is, that dam is still hold, hanging in there. You see the big rocks, mm-hmm. you know, massive. We've had a lot of high water, but now it's really silted in. And uh, in fact, uh, the current owners of Kelly, Jim Kelly, who's another distant relative, and uh, once why he takes some of the boards out, 
the DC, I believe, requirement to take a few of the sluice boards out when to the, lower the dam when the when fish the, are spawning. When the trout are spawning, yeah. never used to. But anyways, you look at it now, I think the average depth of that of the Lake Oaxaca is like probably you may have a foot foot of water in there. I mean, you can waterfowl love it though. Oh yeah, <laughs> the ducks and geese on that pond. Well, last time the water was low, like a month ago. I guess Jim must took a board or two or whatever, and boy, I saw some big snapping turtles out there. Oh really? Just wandering around, huh. you know. And I said, but we, I, I just gonna, and they were there probably when we were we used to swim. There's an island out there that there's a fellow named Herrick used to develop a lot of property, and in Hawkinsville actually uh, there used to be a campground he developed there down along the river, which is all gone now. It's all grown up, and you never know it. But that was a big thing back in the '60s. People would come there and camp in the '70s. But uh, yeah, that was uh, Hawkinsville was quite the place at one time. <laughs> Had a great restaurant, and uh, that's way back when. So anyways, getting back to trees with the deer, uh, it's still a problem because when you walk in in uh, a forest and look at the regeneration, a lot of it looks like bonsai because the deer— Well, there's no doubt. They're, keep, they're oh. keeping up with whatever grows. Yeah. But, I mean, the other things, what do you think about problems? Do you think we're doing enough cutting? Do you think we're not? I mean, we're doing it in the wrong ways. What's, what's causing these issues? Because the, the more we have guests on here on From the Forest, we're yeah. beginning to realize it's not— just Catskills. It's it's the whole oh, the whole Northeast and really down in the Appalachian spine. I took a trip out to North Georgia this February to a wedding and I did a little hiking in the North Georgia mountains. Well, just previous to that, we had a professor on from uh, she was from Northern Alabama, and she was talking about uh, maple in the understory. Some of these issues that we talk about, and, and, and I went and saw it myself, with my own eyes in, in North Georgia. There was there was uh, birch and um, and soft maple in the understory. Not regenerating very well. I mean, they've got a deer browse problem yeah. worse than worse than here. It seems. I mean, it's, there's nothing growing. But so, what do you think the what do you think these big issues are, and how can we address them? Well, another another problem with our forest too, besides the deer regeneration, is I think you should have more cutting. It would help, but it's the quality of our forest. Most people look at driving around, look at a forest that looks beautiful. Now. <laughs> You know as well as I do, being a forester, when you go in the woods, and and then it kind of affects me a little bit when I'm hunting because you're supposed to be looking for deer. I'm looking at the trees. Me too. I'm always looking up at the trees. <laughs> How many more feet? You know, are just you know, I love I love being in the woods, looking at trees. I think that's and, my uh, favorite part about yeah. hunting is I get to go see trees yeah. I normally wouldn't go well, go look, look at. I look at the whole environment. You know, one thing here I love to see uh, like the stone walls wherever you go. You know, it was all built by the Irish and Scotch when they came over here. And it's just, you got this vast land, these vast forests now, but you know, they were cleared at one time because mm -hmm. you see these beautiful stone walls in the forest. Beautiful. It's just, uh, and these rock fo formations, you know, with the glacial history here, the uh, these erotics they call them. You got these big boulders in the middle of woods and uh, very impressive. But, uh, but, anyways, the previous cutting history and a lot of this property around here, a lot of forest land, and not just here, it's all through the east, has uh, been a lot of high grading. And high grading is where you go in there, cut the best, and you leave the rest. And if you're, and I'm dealing with a property right now, right across my house, it's like almost 500 acres. And fortunately, I got a guy who's doing able to do the work because if you have a well managed forest, you should run like five six percent tops of call trees coming out those are call trees and they're not suitable for salt timber but they need to come out because they're taking up space and they're not quality trees the call trees we call them forest or ugs unacceptable growing stock the uglies the uglies yeah the uglies exactly 
Well, I got a forest I'm working on now. I tried to get in there 40 years ago. I knew the landowner, but he was after the money thing. So he had four different people in there, and they high grade each time. I mean, if I got in there 40 years ago, the timber he would have had today would have been beautiful. So it's like starting over. So we should have like 5 6% cold trees on a typical uh, timber sale, which is difficult to find here in the Catskills because so much of our forest land has been high graded, which was just a common practice, not here, but everywhere in the east. So... You know, I'm up on this lot. I marked uh, 5,000 tr- call trees and about 1,200 commercial salt timber trees. Wow. And, I mean, it, that's... Uh, so three, ex- three, 400 percent. That's excessive. <laughs> yeah. Far excessive. But if, if those trees didn't come out, then we're going to regenerate. And uh, so it would be interesting to watch. But like I was able to find somebody... Could you market it? Like, well, yeah. Did, I, it, did it all sell? I only had one person who was really interested, but he moves a lot of firewood. Mm-hmm. But you know now with the price of diesel, your bottom you got to charge more, and he's coming from a distance, doing a great job. He's got a great crew in there. It comes all the way from uh, West Shokan, you know, that's close to Snyder. That's our secret little hiding spot, right? Yeah, yeah. Enclave. That's Ryan's spot. <laughs> <laughs> that's his office. That's his, that's uh, his office. office. <laughs> so um, anyway, so what, most forest land you got to, and some forces are reluctant to do this. Because it costs them money, and the landowner is not willing to take less money to get those cold trees come out. Because it costs the loggers money to take cold trees out. You know what they want to deal with is the valuable trees that they can make money on. But you got to get them cold trees to come out. So uh, what I do now when I bid a sale out, it's got a lot of cold trees excessive. We get the bid, and if it's a 40A, you got to give a uh, uh, amount of money that timber's worth to DEC. They have to approve it. That's part of the process of notice of commercial cutting. So they'll check it out, and, and then if they approve the amount of money, then uh, that's what it, then you got to pay 6% stumpage tax to the county clerk. So that's the way the county gets something back in return because, you know, uh, some landowners are getting a tax reduction, maybe five, six, seven, eight thousand $8,000. But it enables them to keep their property forested, they don't have to break it up and sell it off. And, and actually, it benefits the public, too, because everybody likes to ride around and see forest land. You don't want to see houses everywhere. If you want to see that, just go south of uh, Newburgh, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's being developed like crazy down there, Yeah. you know, down towards the city. And everybody likes to see forest land. That's why they come here. They want open space, forest land. So uh, the 40A is beneficial to everybody, not just the landowner with the tax reduction, because it preserves the landscape. You know, the fieldscape, and it's very important. And it protects the water and wildlife. We need forest tracts of property. So it's a great program. It's a great thing. So you got to get these cold trees out. So in this case, I marked 5,000, over 5,000 cold trees and uh, a little over 1,200 uh, of uh, commercial, what we call eggs, AGS trees, acceptable grown stock. Yep. And, uh, and most of that is small white ash because all the big timber has been repeatedly cut out repeatedly cut out so uh it was a it's it's kind of a piece i told the landowner he's been good about it because uh the bid that came in uh landowner is taking some of that money and paying back to the uh, logger to do the tsi work because that's an investment into your property because by improving your forest as i said you ain't watch the value of, of timber in the years to come it's just going to go up 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 if you got quality timber you know if you're managing your property correctly and uh, so but forestry is a long-term perspective you know we're looking at uh you know way beyond our lifetimes you know you're looking at uh you know 
forever, basically, forest management. Yeah, what do they say? A good forester never sees his work? Exactly. A b- bad forester sees it right away? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> so it's a long-term perspective. You know, and then it's a risk too when you manage your forest because now you've got these insect issues to deal with. So uh, every tree species, one of the greatest losses, uh, biological uh, losses uh, for, as far as the forest goes, is the uh, American chestnut. Yeah. Which are doing uh, a lot of work now, trying to bring it back through the genetic and uh, uh, work. Syracuse College of Forestry is doing a lot of genetic work. And, uh, and, and then also... That they're using some other uh, methods too, but you know, American chestnut. In some cases, like here in the Cascades, I still find old stumps. You probably have too. You know, uh, American chestnut. Plenty of stump sprouts. Yeah, stump sprouts, yeah. and then it gets a certain size, and the canker hits it again. And uh, but probably in the Cascades, of course, uh, depends who you speak to. But in some cases we have a lot of oak now was originally American chestnut. And in some cases, it ran 30 40 50%, if not more. You see the old pictures of a chestnut. These trees, some of them were uh, 14, 16 feet across. Just unbelievable. And then they say, like, the squirrels are the size of uh, woodchucks. Well, because uh, the American chestnut is so rich and so large. Yeah. And it produces nuts every year, the American chestnut did. And uh, so the squirrels just, you know, gorged themselves. They weren't that large, but anyways, they're... They had some great eating, along with deer and bears. And, uh, in fact, the people, more so in the Appalachia Mountains, would actually collect uh, American chestnut and uh, fill train loads, car loads of, uh, that they ship by train to the city market. You know, So it's something most people don't realize, uh, that we had that tree species here, and it really was a significant part of our forest. And it was a great loss because... Uh, I don't know if you ever see American uh, chestnut furniture. I've it's, got a I've got a dresser in my house. Oh, is that right? Yep. It's beautiful. It's, it's uh, like oak, but it's lighter. Yeah. It's very strong. I was uh, fortunate enough. I didn't build the one in my house, but I was fortunate enough to mill up a chestnut, a 15 inch diameter log. That probably had the blight. It died from the blight. Yeah. Landowner had been watching it its whole life, and it finally uh, finally succumbed. We we milled, milled it up, and I've got two boards. Two boards in my house right now. I'm waiting for the perfect project with it. But um, no, it was. I would say it's a mix between ash and oak as far as appearance goes. Um, but just something's different about it. Well, it's light, strong, and extremely durable. Yeah. And uh, rot resistant. In fact, uh, when I was working for MOP back in '72 through '74, one summer, I decided I'd go to work for the National Park Service, and so I went to work at Shandong National Park. I still have my hat and my uniform. I don't think I can get in it, though, but I, I have it hanging in my closet. <laughs> I know that's just uh, way back when. And uh, But you go in the forest and you see remnants of the chestnut trees still standing in the air, you know, like 30, 40, 50 feet. You wow. Know, uh, in some cases, taller. Dead standing you know, 50 years then? Yeah. In fact, that's a lot of your wooden posts down there were American chestnut. You wow. Know, which you see the classic Appalachian signs around the farmhouses and a lot of your pole barns down there were American chestnut. <laughs> You've seen pictures of the Appalachian, the barns, the pole barns, and yeah. the fences, the split rail. Yep. So it's uh, it was a great loss. That American chestnut, along with the uh, sycamore, uh, where the I think I've lied for the and it maybe tulip trees in there too to some degree as the two largest trees in the east. I don't know what your feelings are on it. Well, tulip trees really, can easily be the tallest. The tallest, but as far as the girth. Uh, yeah, sycamore, and well, actually, there's some old historic books 
and uh, there's a botanist came up out of uh, Philadelphia, and he came up to the Susquehanna River, and he talks about camping overnight in a cavity of, of a live sycamore tree. They were huge, you know. Well, that one in Walton is giant. Yeah, no? and uh, they're beautiful trees. In fact, I got some. My wife kind of gets after me a little bit because I buy trees all the time from different nurseries and from the state, and it's, it's just a matter of getting them in the ground. You know, <laughs> it takes me a while because i got to decide where I want to put them. And in some cases, it may take a year or two. But then finally, I decided, yeah, this is where it will go or needs to go. So, uh, but, you know, one th- thing interesting about the sycamore is that it was the most valuable tree species, one of the most valuable tree species at the turn of the century. you know why? No. Because horse carriages, the frames were made from sycamore. Very light, but it's twisted grain. Very strong, yeah. For twisted grain. That's why if you take a block of sycamore, you can take a hatchet, and it'll bounce right off. Because it's hmm. interlocking grain, and uh, so it made great, uh, strong carriages. You know, horse carriages. And lightweight. It is lightweight. Yeah, and, and uh, so people don't realize that. You know, but today it just has no uh, commercial value at all, as far as uh, timber-wise, as far as I know. And there's not too much. It, it's it's beautiful wood if you can get a hold of it. I got a bunch in my my shop right now. It is some gorgeous. Cortisone sycamore is. Is that right? It's got beautiful. a fleck, it's got a fleck into it like white oak. Does it got a? It's kind of a fish scale, kind of a tiger yeah, yeah. stripe look to it. Yeah. It's gorgeous, gorgeous. It's, but I think it's a pure, it's a beautiful tree, anyways. Sickly. Some people it's like got that modded look, that like green and white, and. Uh, oh yeah, beautiful in the landscape. But Randy, I hate to do this. An hour has flown by. What? We're over. We're out of time on From the Forest. I thought I was going to listen to my favorite song. I what couldn't happened? even. I couldn't cut you off to play it. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah, it's time. Well, it's, time it's, to shut her down. Well, you got any last thoughts for us, or how people can get a hold of you if they want to I, talk to you some more? Yeah, I just. Uh, this has been a pleasure to be here, and I always like to educate people about their forests. I, I mean, I show up on people's property. I get calls, and I I don't charge for that. I probably should to show up just to tell them what they got and. and what they could do and not necessarily should do but could do and uh yeah i'm listed i'm on caskill mtn forestry at yahoo.com all one word caskill mountain forestry there you go so you can i don't have, have a website but you can email me you know i don't even have a cell phone i'm old school find them in the phone book yeah, my, my wife says i should uh, get a phone especially because i'm working out in the woods but a lot of places you don't have receptions but i guess i'll, I'll give them one of these days and, <laughs> and, and get one well if you miss from the forest we've been talking to randy kelly he's a forester here in the catskill mountains right here in roxbury new york so can i just say one thing absolutely uh one thing i just want to bring is i got my tick check report and one thing i'll make everybody aware of if ticks are out in abundance this year something to be aware of in fact i send my ticks now when i get them uh to uh, uh pennsylvania state university out of Stroudsburg. they do have a lab there so anyway they people don't realize this but they test for 29 different pathogens right there's a lot of them out there oh, now it's unbelievable and like uh, a couple of these pathogens like powallan you can get that within 50 minutes from a tick not the 24 hours. Yeah, get them off. Check yourself right Really, now. it ticks me off. But anyways, <laughs> so I got, like, tested for sick. But the thing is, I got off. The tick wasn't engorged. But just be aware of because I just, I mean, I do the long pants, the long shirts. I spray. I still get the ticks. It just ticks me off. <laughs> just beware of ticks. All right. Have a tick-free. Tick-free evening, yes. everyone. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for listening to From the Forest on WIOX 91.3 FM. Children at their games In an old house on a hillside